Sir Ferdinando Gorgias. Sounds like an Iberian prince, but he was as English as they came. He fought the Spanish Armada at sea. He fought bravely in the wars of continental Europe. He had friends and connections in the court of Queen Elizabeth. He was distantly related to the Gilberts and the Rileys, and certainly cut from the same cloth. In 1591, for his bravery, he was knighted. And if we quickly fast forward to the year 1601, Ferdinando was working as the commander of the fort at Plymouth. Plymouth, England, that is. An important job at the front line of the defense of England should Spain send yet another armada in its direction. A proven and useful subject of Queen Elizabeth. And so it must have been a strange day when the party he fell in with started taking hostages sent straight from the royal court, one of which was Sir John Popham, Lord Chief Justice of England. Popham was an old man, but there was a rumor about his early days in his youth where he was a highwayman, and he was known for his severe sentences, many being executions, including that of Mary, Queen of Scots, and for men especially, the slow process of drawing and quartering. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, staring into Popham's cold, steely eyes, must have sensed that Popham had no fear of this situation, declaring at his advanced age that his assassination would only shave off a couple years. But in Ferdinando's mind, him being quite a bit younger, is now a co-conspirator in a plot that involves taking hostage the head of the judicial arm of Queen Elizabeth's government. In what started as a power move to influence the makeup of Queen Elizabeth's court, only to have all the vestiges of a full-on rebellion. What is Sir Ferdinando to do? Welcome back to the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. I started this episode with this short chapter on Sir John Popham and Sir Ferdinando Gorgias because they will be the two most important characters in our entire episode and Gorgias moving forward for quite a while in this season. And where these two men seem to intertwine most dramatically is right here in 1601 during the rebellion of the Earl of Essex who gathered around himself people who were unhappy with the court of Queen Elizabeth not specifically wanting to overthrow the queen, but wanting to reconstitute who was in her court, who ran the government of England. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias supposedly being one of these people. However, when push came to shove, it was Sir Ferdinando Gorgias that rescued John Popham, placed the old man in a boat, and personally rowed the man to safety. And in fact, somehow, all the hostages that Essex took were gone before the key moment where they would be used as leverage. One would suspect that Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was an agent of the Queen's court the entire time. However, after rescuing Sir John Popham, there was a time where Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was stripped of his command and imprisoned, only to thereafter be shortly freed based on his rescue of Sir John Popham and his cooperation in outing all of his co-conspirators. Either way, the two men, if not before, were now close associates of one another. And by 1603, Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was back at his command at the fort at Plymouth, England, just in time to see the West Country flush with sassafras, brought in by an expedition financed by Sir Walter Riley to an area they called North Virginia or Norumbega that we would call New England, but also the cargo of another man, Bartholomew Gosnold, who went to the same area and got the same product and flushed the same markets. And so Sir Walter Riley citing his rights of monopolization and exclusivity, going back to the failed colony of Roanoke, and even further back to the rights of his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, sought to sue Gosnold out of existence, along with his two half-nephews, who happened to help Gosnold in his expedition. Obviously, with all this hubbub, there was a lot of money involved, a lot of profit to be made. Riley's expedition left no account, but two people on Gosnold's expedition and his subsequently short-lived colony left accounts. Only one would be published many years from now in 1625, because right now it described where and how and the conditions of how to make a great deal of money off these New World goods. And so the trade remained clandestine. But Sir Ferdinando Gorgias was in a unique position to receive all sorts of information on ways he could make profit. Insider trading, perhaps. One of the accounts 
left by Gosnold was written by John Brereton. Now, Gorgeous had a friend named Sir William Brereton. They may have been related. But even without this connection, being the commander at the, of the fort at the port of Plymouth meant he was wise to all the ingoing and outgoing information, all the rumors and gossip from all the sailors. And he himself, being a distant relation of Sir Walter Riley, could receive information about the New World in the area we call New England from both sides of these lawsuits. His interest was piqued. And suddenly, Ferdinando Gorgias had a little extra time on his hand, because at the beginning of the 17th century, the wars with Spain between England and Spain were winding down. So instead of consuming his thoughts with protecting England from a possible new armada from Spain, he could now think about how to use his position to enrich himself and his friends. And so in 1603, Gorgias sought to replicate Gosnold's journey, only this time under the permission of Sir Walter Riley, so there wouldn't be any lawsuits. He gets that permission, and then he sends out a ship commanded by Martin Pring, and he takes the same route that Gosnold took, going south via the Azor Islands to the area that we now call New England. This is why many historians think that they had knowledge of Gosnold's journey, which again had yet to be published, but was known among a select few in this network. Pring's expedition was profitable, and he spent about six weeks in and around the area uh, that the Wampanoag people called Patuxet. And why that's significant is because that would be, in the future, Plymouth. The Plymouth in New England, not old. He even spent time with the natives and described their agriculture and different aspects of their, of their society as far as he could discern. So years before the Plymouth settlers, the so-called pilgrims, Martin Pring is already there, one of Gorgeous's men. And as we learned last season, Samuel de Champlain, he already shows up at Patuxet years before the pilgrims. This idea that the Wampanoag didn't know what the English were about or the European uh, traders who showed up on the shores were all about, that's just a lie. The Wampanoag were very well informed as to what Europeans wanted from them. But events back in merry old England would take precedent over all of this because Queen Elizabeth I has passed away. The Elizabethan era is over and she has no heir. Very famously, she was known as the Virgin Queen. Whether that be true or not, she had no legitimate children. As was the law and custom, well, this would now default to her full-blooded, legitimate siblings, fathered by her father, Henry VIII. Well, those siblings were Edward VI and Bloody Mary, who were both regents in their own time and were predecessors to Queen Elizabeth. She was the end of the line. As such, you need to go back further. So Henry VIII had a father named Henry VII, no surprise there. Let's look at his family. That's where the new king or queen will have to come from. Well, it turns out King James VI of Scotland is the great, great grandson of Henry VII of England. But he is so twice through both his mother and his father, having the nation of Scotland under his command and significant support from nobility in England. This made him the presumed heir to the throne of England after Elizabeth would pass. But of course, this didn't come without opposition. A personal union of the Kingdom of Scotland and England would be threatening to everyone else in continental Europe because you always want to deal with two small enemies or rivals rather than one medium-sized rival, right? Also, many of the Catholic countries like France wanted to continue to push England back into the, the fold of the Latin church. King James VI of Scotland would not be that individual. And so this very same year as the Pring Expedition and this agreement between Gorgias and Sir Walter Riley, there was a vague plot where a large sum of money was being transferred from one of these Catholic kings in continental Europe to certain individuals within England to start funding seditious activities that would ultimately undermine the leadership of King James VI of Scotland, now King James I of England, and put on the throne either a Catholic relative of his or someone who was at least pro-Catholic or Catholic tolerant, who meanwhile, by the way, could be under the influence of these very same foreign powers funding this plot. Eventually, investigators would come to call this the main and by plot. There was a main plot and a side plot, and it's kind of vague how it all fits together. But one of the prominent individuals who were supposed to be in receipt of this huge amount of funds from the continent was Sir Walter Riley, governor of the island of Jersey. Like his distant cousin Gorgias, he was responsible for a vulnerable area 
that needed a prominent and capable person to help protect it and organize its defense. But from that same location, he could receive a boatload of silver and gold to help seed sedition. King James, being wise to this plot, had Riley and others imprisoned. Riley himself was held in the Tower of London. The truth of the matter is, King James just hated Sir Walter Riley, and he hated tobacco. The smell of it, the smoke, the, the dirtiness it causes. And he blamed Riley for having made tobacco popular in England. And that might be a, a misattribution. But it doesn't matter because he's the king and that's what he thinks. King James even wrote tracts about how tobacco was, was just a terrible thing to bring into a family household or just to use in general. So let's bring all these pieces together now. Sir Walter Riley, the man who holds all these rights and privileges in the New World, is on trial for a plot against King James himself. Who would preside over such a trial? None other than Sir John Popham. Now what's interesting about Popham is that he also presided over the trial that eventually led to the execution of Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, who is none other than King James's mother. But digging back a little bit in my memory from the last time I read a biography about King James, it seems like he was silent or indifferent on the death of his mother by the time he assumed the uh, crown of England. Of course, he would have to be in order to um, maintain a comfortable power base. So not only had Sir John Popham survived the uh, killing of the future king's mother, but now passed a death sentence on Sir Walter Riley. Taken from the Tower of London, Sir Walter Riley stood on the gallows, and it said at the very last second, King James commuted his sentence. At the precipice of death, he was pulled back at the last second. Not because King James liked Riley any more than he did before, but maybe perhaps because he wanted him to suffer a little longer. But instead of being released or restored to any of his rights and privileges, he was put right back in that tower. So Sir Walter, for now, will live. But his claims and monopolies on the new world, and in the English eyes, were all gone, vacated, canceled out. Sir Humphrey Gilbert, many decades before this time, and his half-brother, Sir Walter Riley, had been the innovators to English colonization of the New World, the vanguard. But in these later years, Sir Walter Riley had become more of a stumbling block, more interested in domestic affairs, and as we've seen from the lawsuits, he, he actually stopped English colonization from progressing at the rate it naturally would have had he not been in the way. Well, now he's out of the way, just in time for the English to compete with the French, who are now showing up in New England and making settlements. Check out last season and the episodes on Champlain for those details. King James could now reorganize how these privileges were distributed among the English concerning the New World along a more organized basis, something more modern for their times, something that the merchant adventurers of England would understand. And so not long after avoiding Sir Walter Riley's rights and privileges, he forms the King's Council of Virginia. Now, this is neither the Plymouth Company nor the Virginia Company that you might have learned about in school. That'll all come afterwards. But on this council were Sir Fernando Gorgias, of course, and not surprisingly, Sir John Popham and Lord Delaware. Sound familiar? You could almost call this a conspiracy, except that it's just right out in the open. As soon as Sir Walter Riley's uh, rights were out of the way, Gorgias and Popham, they pounced, and they filled the void that they might have had some part in creating. At the same time, Ferdinando Gorgias, along with Sir Thomas Arundel, they finance George Weymouth, who would undertake an expedition to what we now call New England. The account we have of this expedition was written down by James Rossier, who might have been on Gosnell's trip also. It's not, you know, it's not very clear. And instead of New England, at this time, they're still calling it Northern Virginia. Now, I'm not too terribly interested in the actual expedition of Weymouth. Like many explorers in that area at the time, they were looking for the Northwest Passage. But one thing Weymouth did that's very important to our story and the eventual settlement of Popham was he took five native captives to bring back to England. Not a nice thing to do, but an extremely common thing that Europeans did at the time. And so, I, I, you know, by modern standards, he's, he's a kidnapper. But uh, the standards of the time, you know, how else do you open up a multilingual a dialogue between two people unless you can exchange young children to learn both languages or you just kidnap people. I'm not defending it, but these five captives were probably all Abenaki. So in and around modern-day Maine is where they would have lived. And from their interactions with the natives, 
they discovered that the Abenaki probably had several different classes of people, as far as the English could tell. So one guy they took was named Tandeo, or Taneto, and he was probably the Sagamore, or the Sachem, a chief. And then there was Amaret, Sikawero, and Manedo. And I know I'm mispronouncing these. And Rossier classified these guys as gentlemen, which of course doesn't really fall in... Uh, gentlemen is an English term. It doesn't really uh, relate to the Abenaki. But whatever their relation was in Abenaki culture, he identified Sasakomiat as being of the servant class. So maybe Sasakomiat was a captive, possibly from the natives of Southeast New England, like the Narragansett, the Wampadog. But these five men would influence a lot of the thinking of Sir Fernando Gorgias and the future direction of colonization in what we would now call New England. So of these five, Gorgias sent two of them to Sir John Popham, who I do not believe helped fund Weymouth's expedition. So maybe this was a way of Gorgias to help draw Popham into investing more in his operations. The other three went with Gorgias, who he, whom he lived with. These weren't like captives living in a cell. They lived with him on his estate. Furthermore, Gorgias read Rossier's account and talked to Weymouth and passed that information along to Popham, where Rossier writes about different ways profits could be made. Of course, no Northwest Passage was found, but the many desirable trees, the whales, the fish, and of course the tobacco. Living with these natives, Gorgias came to be able to communicate with them by some means and listen to their stories, and he got to know them. And he even writes that, you know, they were of better manners than just the common Englishman. Of course, as someone's hostage in a country you don't know and have no possible way of escaping without help, you would probably be <laughs> in your best behavior at all times. Eventually, Gorgias would see to it that his three Abenaki would learn English. And in addition to all the opportunities that Rossier mentioned in his account, these natives learned what Gorgias wanted, and they told him what he wanted in any way to get themselves back to their homes. And so Gorgias's head was filled with stories about gold mines and about the Chinese Empire having contact with the Abenaki, not being too far to the west of where the Abenaki lived. Similarly, Popham had sent out a sailor by the name of George Weymouth to explore the coast of what would now be Maine thereabouts. And Weymouth came back with more natives <laughs> that he kidnapped and a glowing report of the various ways that money could be made in the New World. But Weymouth's proposition for Popham was small. It was very similar to Gosnold. Let's start with how we make our wealth. A small colony of just working-age men making money for us and themselves. And as the colony becomes more and more profitable, it'll grow from there. But remember, Popham is not a meat-and-potatoes guy. He's not a salt-of-the-earth fellow. He's in charge of the highest court in the land. At this very same time, he's overseeing the trial of Guy Fox. Yeah, that Guy Fox, the gunpowder plot. Popham is a big deal. He, instead of seeing a small merchant operation that might have some growth afterward, envisions colonization on a far grander scale, a complete transplant of English society into the new world. Villages and farms as far as the eye could see, rights and privileges and titles of nobility for the upper crust, extending as it was with Sir Walter Riley and Sir Humphrey Gilbert, for hundreds of miles in all directions. This, of course, without much regard to Native American rights at the time. And so tying all of these things together, from the King's Council of Virginia, Lord Delaware, Gorgias, and Popham start to construct a colonial merchant scheme for dividing up the New World in as far as the English could claim it. And in the hands of King James, this becomes the charter or patents of the two Virginia companies. Yes, there were two Virginia companies. From 34 to 41 degrees north latitude would be the Virginia Company of London. Bartholomew Gosnold will be a major investor and organizer of this company. And again, most of the investors would come out of London and the satellite areas around it. This in the oldest documents is referred to as the first company because its degrees latitude would roughly cover this zone that Roanoke occupied and the commercial monopoly held by Sir Walter Riley. And the land that they would have called Virginia, just plain old Virginia. The second company would be overlapping in latitude. So there'd be a middle area, roughly the middle states 
from our colonial era far in the future of this, that three degrees of overlap between the two companies would encourage competition between the two. And this second company would be called the Virginia Company of Plymouth. Again, we see that word Plymouth because Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous would be the main organizer of this company. And investors in this company would come from the West Country and all the places around where Gorgeous lived and had family relations. Some sources will claim that these two companies were essentially one Virginia company with two organs, two sections. And those people would be wrong. They're simply two separate companies wherein they're expected to compete with one another who happen to have their rights and privileges outlined in the same document in 1606 by King James. And over time, the Southern Company, or the first company, became known as the Virginia Company. Here in 1606, this Northern or Second Company that we're going to focus on for the Popham Colony, uh, they refer to themselves as the Adventurers of the Northern Colony of Virginia. Because again, there's no New England yet. Some people call this area Norumbega, but the real popular term is North Virginia, or Northern Virginia, or the North of Virginia. And in time, this second company would just be known by the shorthand of Plymouth Company. All of this, by the way, predates the Pilgrims that you know of from 1620. This company had a very promising start. For one thing, they consolidated all of the merchants out of specifically the city of Bristol, which was a very important city where John Cabot sailed out of, Giovanni Caboto, a hundred years before, more than that. And since that time, out of this port city, there had been many of the merchant fishing and fur trading operations along the coast of Newfoundland and Maine and places that we would now call Nova Scotia. And so the Plymouth Company tried to roll up all those old interests into one common cause, one common direction. Why compete when we can all be part of the same company? And this Plymouth Company, this Northern Company, the second company, they were actually ready to move a lot faster than the Southern Company, the first company the one that's going to found Jamestown in 1607. Here we are in 1606, and Popham and Gorgeous are already sending out ships under the sanction of this new charter from King James. With settlers, they're not looking to go fishing. They're looking to build homes and stay a while. In this joint venture, Popham is going to organize an outfit and pay for one ship, Gorgeous another. The two would rendezvous off the coast of Maine and find a place to settle down. In addition to these settlers, the ships would also have some of the native captives on board who have since learned English, who could now be used as interpretaries, interpretaries, interpreters, and intermediaries. Oh, there's the, that's why I messed that up, between the Abenaki, other native groups, and the English. Now the events really start to speed up, so it gets a little confusing to try to sort it all out. But the ship that Gorgeous financed was captained by Henry Chalons, if he's French. It's probably Chalons, but I don't like that name. And they were warned not to take a southern route. Don't go the way Gosnell did by the Azores. It's too close to the Iberian powers, and they know you're up to something. But they ignore that advice, and they end up being captured by the Spanish. The whole crew is uh, turned into galley slaves. By some account, mere captives by other accounts. Either way, uh, this is scuttled. Gorge's entire investment and the lives of all these people have been completely derailed and taken. Popham's ship left a little later. September of 1606. A terrible time to start a new colony off the coast of the North Atlantic, but we'll see. This ship was captained by Pring, who we met earlier, and Thomas Hanham, who was Popham's own grandson. They managed to avoid all the hazards, and they make it off the coast of Maine. But of course, no matter the arrangements, they were never able to rendezvous with a ship that had been seized by the Spanish. And so they were weary of setting up a colony when only one of the two ships showed up. But they did scout out some potential sites for a colony. And most importantly, they brought back two of the natives, Tahaneto and Amoret. The hope was, despite being kidnapped, all the good treatment they received and the fact that they now know English, they would be useful to the English in the next coming year, given that colonial efforts could be reorganized in England and more ships sent over. And that is precisely what happens. In the year 1607, Gorges and Popham put together another colonial scheme to pick up where the other one had fallen apart the year before. Now, I believe Ferdinando Gorges has had his legacy or his influence kind of overlooked by historians. And one reason right here is that we know this colony as the Popham Colony. There's other names for it, but it's the Popham Colony, named after Sir, Sir John Popham. And that's because after losing so much money in 1606, it was Popham who really had most of the money 
for the 1607 endeavor. But Gorgias was also a major financier and organizer of what we're about to hear about. The second reason on this specific issue of the Popham colony that Gorgias is kind of forgotten is that the leader of the Popham colony on the ground in the colony is going to be Sir John Popham's wayward nephew, the over-the-hill, underperforming, underachieving, sickly George Popham. And so for those two reasons, not to be repetitive, that's why we tend to call this the Popham colony. Both the money and the supposed leadership on the ground came from the Popham family. Now, some sources say that George Popham was elected president of the Popham colony. This makes no sense whatsoever. This isn't a democracy. Popham and Gorges have paid for this thing to be set up, and Popham placed his own nephew in charge. Now, did Gorges, Popham, and any minor investors, did they elect as essentially shareholders in the venture? George Popham, yeah, you could use that word election, but we're not talking about a democracy. This is a business, still in the age of monarchies. As such, other than George Popham, the government was kind of nebulous. There would be assistant presidents, as Popham saw fit, one of which was probably insisted on by Gorgias, and that was Riley Gilbert. That's right, son of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, half-nephew of Sir Walter Riley. Riley Gilbert may have been part of Gosnold's colony. We know his brother definitely was, Bartholomew Gosnold. Now, poor Bartholomew was not part of Popham, because in 1603, before losing his rights and privileges, his uncle, Sir Walter Riley, sent him on one last futile attempt to find the Roanoke colonists. Which, to no one's surprise, if you know the story of Roanoke, he did not find. But he did meet his maker there, so there is that. And so it's highly likely that Riley Gilbert also had experience in the New World, where George Popham did not. And I know I'm being long-winded, but just to circle back to George Popham, there's no way he went along with this venture as just another colonist and then was elected president. He was an older man from a well-connected family who was sickly, as I said before. He wouldn't just sign up to be, you know, the everyday riffraff on the ground. He was placed in that leadership position before ever stepping on the boat to head towards the new world. And the last thing I'll say on this point, this wasn't a democracy, even though we had this title of president and assistant president in the little tiny colony. These were positions they would essentially be appointed to ahead of time. The colonists on the ground, it wouldn't be proper for them to hold elections. This wasn't a municipality that they were living and working in. This was a business from which they were employed. You usually can't elect your own boss. And this kind of uh, setup is pretty much consistent with the early French colonies that we learned about last season and the colony of New Netherland. And what was the business of this colony? Well, of course, they were to engage in the fur trade and fishing operations. Timber, when they got the chance, those were the safe, easy plays. They were also to look for mines of gold, silver, and copper. There was always the outside chance they would find a Northwest Passage. The captive natives always telling the Europeans what they wanted to hear. The area we call Maine, that they would have called Northern Virginia, already had practical products they could make money off of, proven reserves of fish, large forests, things like that. But then there were also all of these fantastical things that, of course, weren't there. But when asked, the natives would say, yes, there are gold mines. Yeah, oh, I know exactly where they are. They're uh, to the west of my homeland. If you bring me home, I'll show you exactly where they are. All of this really made the Plymouth Company, the second company, whatever you want to call it, far more attractive of a place to, to invest your money than, I believe, the first company or the Virginia Company of London, which, as we know, is going to take off. But at the time, it would be like, OK, there was a colony there several decades before. All the people have disappeared mysteriously. Certainly not a good sign of things to come. And oh, in that very same area, the... Uh, the Spanish tried to set up a mission, and everyone was slaughtered before that. Well, Maine had some proven but not exciting products and a lot of promises, Virginia and the South in general had already some dark stories and some certainly dark mysteries. And so while Ferdinando Gorges mostly feared the French as far as his company was concerned, because Champlain and others had already set up colonies in the area that we would now call New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Maine, in and around there. St. Croix and Port Royal. He also was very much afraid of the competitive threat of the London Company. Because again, they did overlap their claims by three degrees. And if something were to happen to the one company, the surviving company would be the heir apparent, essentially, to those claims. But even the mere failure of a venture, like this Popham colony, 
would cause investors to flee from one company to another. And so even though all of the 1606 schemes fell apart, in 1607, Popham and Gorgias have regathered everything, reorganized everything, and are ready to start a colony. The real money and energy and enthusiasm was with Popham Colony, not with the Jamestown Colony. But of course, you know that's going to change. And the last concern that Gorgias had was over the cooperation of the natives in the area. Considering several of the natives have been kidnapped over the years by his employees, by the time Riley and Popham are in their boats, ready to go over to the New World, all of those natives have either been returned or are returning with these two gentlemen. And hopefully the good treatment will make up for the kidnapping. There's really no other way to put it. John's nephew George and Riley Gilbert would take two ships. And the dates are a little fuzzy here, but it was either May 31st of 1607 or early June of 1607. The two ships were the Gift of God and the Mary and John. Riley Gilbert was generally in command while they were at sea due to his experience. But as soon as they hit land and the colony officially founded, it was understood that George Popham would assume his position as president and thus be in charge of everyone. And so begins the rivalry between these two men. Before they even have a colony to fight over, all the sources refer to George Popham. We've talked about his health and his age and whatnot. But due to all those things, he was not a capable leader. And this might be an unfair assessment. His rival and assistant, Riley Gilbert, had a similarly prestigious background. And he may have had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Just to review, his father, at least in his eyes, began English colonization of North America in Newfoundland decades before this time. His uncle, Sir Walter Riley, and he would start the second English colony in North America. Newfoundland being an island, probably actually the first English colony on the mainland, which would, of course, be Roanoke. And with Roanoke came the invention of Virginia, as this large, expansive territory named after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. His uncle losing these privileges, now he finds himself as part of this new company, this Plymouth Company. Obviously, having not invested as much capital into the venture as the Popham's had, he had a subservient role. But beyond the money, he must have been like, you know, my family's been doing this for decades. This is kind of part of what we do. Also, as I've already mentioned, it's likely Riley Gilbert had already been to North America, whereas George Popham had not. And then lastly, discussing that chip on his shoulder, Riley Gilbert was far younger than George Popham, a better leader, more energetic. He had plans. The guy had moxie. And so with that, we have a president who can't preside and an assistant who can't assist or is unwilling to assist. The first crack has formed. Below the leadership, there were a hundred men. That's right, they were all men. It's said that all of Plymouth came out to see these ships off. It was a big deal. People, a lot of people in that area had a lot of money wrapped up into it and a lot of family members, frankly. It's likely that Sir John Popham himself was even there. And it may have been the last trip the man ever took. Because 11 days after the colonists leave Plymouth for the New World, John Popham dies, June 10th, 1607. The main financial backer of the colony is no more. However, this was a man of letters, a man of law and justice. This wasn't a colonizer. This wasn't an organizer. He was no sailor or explorer. His money having already been doled out, at least for this season. So who stepped in to fill his void? Well, Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous, of course. As soon as he heard of Popham's death, he took control of all preparations, all operations, all resupply plans, and prepared letters explaining his plan and reassuring the settlers of such to be taken over during these resupplies. And so we tend to call this the Popham Colony because of the main financial backer, not to be repetitive, John Popham, George Popham being its leader. But by golly, I could argue that it could be called the Gorgeous Colony or the Ferdinando Colony. This may be the first of many examples coming up in the season where Gorgeous's legacy is swept right under the rug. But let's get back to our colonists. In August, they hit the coast of what we would now call Maine. By August 20th, they decided on their site to build their colony. They chose an easily defensible peninsula called Sabino Head on the Sagadahawk River. Keeping defenses in mind, they immediately started building what they called Fort St. George, a far more impressive structure than the colonists at Jamestown would be building. The records seem to indicate that Riley Gilbert on his boat came a little bit later than Popham, which of course is when the rivalry would really kick in. Popham probably anticipating this rivalry on August 22nd before Riley showed up. 
took a shallop and began to explore the coast. Making contacts with some natives, he learned that there had recently been a very large war in the area that was caused by the murder of a chief's son. In other words, this was a blood feud, which I've talked about many times before. These things are seasonal, unstoppable. There's almost no way to win one without causing another one. This was not a good omen for George Popham, so he returned the very next day. Riley shows up before the 28th, and he organizes his own expedition. He takes 15 of the 100 or so men with him. Lots of people have written about this rivalry, and some take the opinion that he organized his own expedition as a way to rival or outshine George's short little trip. But in all practicality, they had to make contact with the natives, they had to map the area, they had to know where they were. And while Riley was gone, the colonists began to make earthenworks and closures around the settlement, erect the buildings, including a storehouse, the entire fort itself with its walls, and they seemed to have been very industrious during this time. Which gets to two other issues, and I know I'm full of digressions, but it's not really a digression. One of the colonists, by the name of John Hunt, he made a sketch of the fort, and that sketch somehow made it to the king of Spain. And that's really the, the depiction we have of what they ended up building. That's really all we have uh, as evidence as to what it looked like, how big it was, how grand it was in scale, what, how many structures were there. We only have this map that was somehow given to the king of Spain. Espionage, of course. But it begs the question, was this everything they planned to build? Or was this everything they managed to build? I think the jury's still out. I don't know. But another thing the colonists did, they immediately started building a ship. A seaworthy vessel. Again, nobody's doing this kind of stuff in Jamestown yet. And this is our second digression. During the 19th century, shortly after the Civil War, we were coming up on certain anniversaries for certain colonies, and historians and educators in Massachusetts were very proud of the Plymouth Colony, which of course by that point had been absorbed by Massachusetts. And there were a series of open letters published in the papers between historians and uh, authorities in Maine and those in Massachusetts debating the nature of the Popham colony. I believe you can find a publication of these put out by a guy by the last name of Baxter, Phineas Baxter. The Civil War had tarnished the image of Jamestown and the South in general, obviously, and all the things that came from it and the institution of slavery. Historians were now looking to New England as the origin story of the United States, Plymouth being the beachhead, the vanguard. But there were a few in Maine who pointed out, hey, no, 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 no. The first English settlement in this part of the continent was Popham, the Popham colony, or the Sagadahawk colony. Now, I bring up this digression because the uh, many of the people in Massachusetts argued, wait a minute, Sir John Popham was the head of the, the judicial branch of the English government at the, at the time, to use our American terms. He had nothing to do with colonial endeavors. So how did he populate these colonies? How did he get people who were willing to go on these crazy trips? Well... The colonists were all prisoners, or most of them were prisoners, and this was some sort of penal colony. That's how the people in Massachusetts in the 19th century, end of the 19th century, mid to end of the 19th century, that's how they tried to soil Popham. But the records don't seem to show that. And on this show, we've seen penal colonies before. And generally, if you're taken somewhere against your will because you're a prisoner and already some sort of criminal or low-life scum, you're not very productive. And that shows in the colony. Let's jump right back to the Popham colony, done with the digression. They're building a fort. They're building earthenworks. Earthenworks? Earthenworks. Earthenworks. I got it now. They're going out on expeditions, and they built a seaworthy vessel. All before winter. I think we can conclude that these were no criminals. These were hardworking men, and the Popham colony had a lot of potential right off the bat. At least in the people. The location? Very debatable. Uh, considering the trouble that Champlain had and his companions at St. Croix, an island, not a peninsula, but pretty similar to the uh, Popham geography. And now I'm going to the author Edward M. Lamont. There were far better spots up the river. The site was on a barren, windswept, rocky point, fully exposed to winter storms. And so I'm going to put that quote right down, and in a couple months we'll see what happens, right? Maine looks awfully nice in August. But now let's turn to our native passenger, on our way over from England, Skidawaris, or Skidawaros, depending on the source. Now back in the vicinity of his people, the English beg him to help them make contact with a nearby village, some group of natives in the area. Skidawaris is a little hesitant, but eventually he gives in. And the village they end up finding is where Tahanendo, who was also taken previously and brought back about a year before this point in time, was Sagamore. He was chief once more of this village, 
despite being absent for a time. As soon as Taha Endo sees the English, he comes running at them with a number of braves and confronts them. Now on his home turf, he's not so friendly to the English anymore. It's only with the presence of Skidawaris and all of the good gestures and friendly motions given by the English that Taha Endo's men relax. There was a tense interaction, but it was the beginning of relations, at least as far as the English thought. They came back two days later. Same reaction from Taha Endo. He knew who this group was, but he showed up again with his warriors. Again, they had to convince them of their peaceful intentions. And again, they had a short conversation. This time, however, Skidawaris, or Skidaweros, asked to stay with this village of people where Taha Endo was chief. The English finally agree, and then Taha Endo agrees to return after a certain number of days. He does not. And when the English go to investigate, they find the whole village has been abandoned. The people, rather than deal with the English, retire to the interior of Maine. And with them, their interpreter. The fallout from this was felt immediately. September 1st, 1607. The first natives show up at the actual Fort St. George at the Popham Colony. It was just a man in his canoe, but the canoe already had brass kettles in it, indicating, of course, that European trade had already been strong and vibrant in the area. One of the Englishmen stepped forward to try to coax the man closer with peaceful gestures. The man came a little bit closer. Their interactions were brief because now they don't have interpreters, and the man got in his canoe and promptly disappeared. The fact that he had the kettles would indicate to me that he was probably caught unawares. Uh, wherever he was returning from, wherever he got those kettles, last time he came that way, the Popham colony didn't exist. And now it did, and he was curious and still very skeptical. It would be four days later on September 5th when nine canoes arrived right at Popham. There were about 40 people total, men, women, and children. Normally with these cross-cultural exchanges, if you show up someplace with women and children, it's a general sign that we come in peace. Lo and behold, they were led there by Tahiendo and Skidawares, or Skidaweros, and they offered to the English to introduce them to Bashaba, the paramount sagamore of the Abenaki. In return for food, the English smelling a genuine opportunity here, they agree. They have a massive feast that night. And as a gesture of this opening relationship here, some of the natives spend the night at Fort St. George. Meanwhile, some of the English spend the night at the native encampment right next door. And after the English had laden their canoes with food, the chief turned English captive, turned chief again, arranges for the English to meet him at a designated location in three days, at which point the English party would be led to the great Sagamore of the Abenaki. Things are looking awfully grand for the people of Popham. So two days later, on September 7th, there were enough buildings in the colony constructed that they were finally able to completely unload their boats with all of their supplies, providing a little textual evidence that they really did an impressive amount of construction in a very short amount of time, and also that these probably weren't common criminals. And then the very next day on September 8th, Gilbert is charged with taking 22 men with him and sailing to the rendezvous spot. Popham probably happy to get rid of him for a little while. But when they get to the spot, no one is there. They had been stood up. But to make sure, they stay there three days and they exhaust their supplies. They weren't planning on being gone that long. That's when Gilbert realized that all the food they had given them before, all the promises, it was all for naught. It was just a scam. To load up on these hearty staple foods that would help the natives through winter, Gilbert and his party limp home. A couple weeks later, on the 23rd of September, Gilbert again is sent out. Some sources insisted that he sent himself out. Either way, Popham again was sending him away on a mission to keep him out of his hair, or Gilbert himself was organizing this effort in order to demonstrate his leadership. But as you can imagine, a end of September in northern Maine, the little hints of winter are starting to peek through in the weather. And so, Gilbert figured he'd better get out there and explore while he still had the chance. Two days into his expedition, while camping at night, he hears somebody calling out to them in the far distance, in what they describe as broken English. Just one voice. They respond back, and then nothing. The next day, four men show up at the English camp. The leader introduces himself to Riley, 
as a man by the name of Sibanoa, who calls himself the Lord of the River, Sagadahawk, and he wanted to know why the English had come. Now, the Gilberts and the Rileys and the Gorges and their whole extended family, they're smart people. And remember, Sebanoa is not the name given by the other group of natives for the Sagamore of the Abenaki. Also, as they all learned very early on, there had recently been a very large war in the area. And then finally, there's only four of these guys. How is he lord of the whole Sagadahawk River when his entourage is himself and three dudes? They had a light conversation for a while, but it was clear to Riley that although this guy knows some English, he's trying to get something over on him. And he knows well the ignorance that Europeans have of this area of the continent. So Riley politely starts moving his group back onto his ship. But then the natives rush into the water and they try to take hold of the shallop. The English try to brush them off. It doesn't work. They're really determined to either take the ship or get on the ship or something. Resorting to a volley of their muskets, Riley's men finally send the natives into a full-on retreat. Perhaps some sort of victory, but a, another failed interaction with the Native Americans. Then on October 3rd, Skidaware shows up again at the Popham Colony with a different group of people. They stay for two days and actually attend Sunday church service at the little chapel the English had built. On the third day, Dahendo shows up with who is supposedly Bashaba's brother. Bashaba, of course, being the Sagamore of the Abenaki. The English lavish Bashaba's brother with gifts, hoping that this would open up a permanent line of communication at last. Also, some trading seems to have been done between this last interaction with the natives and the earlier ones, because in October, the Popham colony sends the Mary and John back to England full of furs. And also on board was our primary source of what was happening in the colony up to this point in our narrative. This journal of events was rediscovered in 1875, I believe among the papers of the Gorges family. And everything else from this point on out is a secondary source. It's something Gorgeous wrote down long after the fact in one of his many books, or from John Smith or Strachey or some other second-hand source for which we no longer have the testimony of whatever first-hand source or primary source they had originally ingested to create their own. And in addition to the furs and the account, around half of the colonists actually returned to England at this time. Because the Popham colony was so low on food, likely having traded it away to the natives already as gifts, and perhaps some also in trades for fur, although they had plenty of metal trinkets and objects and tools for that already prepared before they left England. Now, these first colonists to bail before winter would have learned about Sir John Popham's death first, of course. But in the various letters provided from the colonists on the ground and their own personal conversation with Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, Gorgias learned that George Popham was an ineffective leader and not a terribly healthy man. He also would have learned that Riley Gilbert was an ambitious leader, but he may have been a little too ambitious in some ways. I think most historians would agree with that assessment, more or less. But here we are in December of 1607, and Ferdinando Gorgias is very optimistic. Perhaps he intercepted one letter that was supposed to go to King James from George Popham, which claimed that the Popham colony was at most seven days' journey away from a sea to the west that would lead directly to China. Of course, this would be the tall tales that were told by the Native Americans to get what they needed out of the Europeans. Let's leave England and return back to the colony. The cold winter was about to set in. No first-hand accounts, short days and long nights. The winter would prove to be slow, long, dull, and unproductive. And yet, of the 45 men who stayed over winter, only two of them died. Look at the nearby French colony of Saint-Croix a couple years just before this. And colonists were killing over dead left and right. But of all the people to die at Saint-Croix, the leadership was more or less left intact. It made the colony strong enough to relocate to Port Royal the very next year. One of the two people who died at Popham was George Popham himself. Once again, I have to argue with the historians and the people who decided to label these things. At this point in the colony, Sir John Popham, the main financier originally, is gone. And then his nephew, George Popham, 
who was supposed to be the on-the-ground leadership, is also gone. George Popham dies February 5th, 1608. On his deathbed, he supposedly wrote the following. I die content. My name will always be associated with the first planting of the English race in the New World. Sorry, George, we couldn't even give you that. Jamestown beat you to it. And so with no power struggles to be had, Riley Gilbert assumed command of the colony. Again, the weeks and the months pass. It was a long winter, by all record. And when the weather finally started to warm up, in the early spring, there was a fire. And it was a fire that started in the storehouse, the most important building for keeping everyone alive. And the records attest to the fact that that building was completely ruined. However, some more recent archaeological evidence suggests that the fire might have been slightly more widespread. Any way you look at it, a severe setback. But from all accounts, Riley Gilbert was not terribly dismayed by this. Again, he had some hard-working men in his colony, and he was expecting resupply fairly soon. To quote the Reverend Edward Ballard, who was one of these gentlemen debating the Popham colony and its significance in the 19th century, There was no intention of abandoning the Popham settlement till Captain Davies returned in the spring, where the news that their patron saint, Sir John Popham, surnamed the Hangman, was dead. That's right, if you weren't keeping score, news traveled very slowly at the time. And so while the colonists who had returned to England, of course, knew that Sir John Popham had died, it was only in the spring of 1608 that the actual colony found out that their main financial backer was no more. And there are many other letters on board. The two most important were both from Sir Fernando Gorges himself. The first urged the colonists to stay firm on their mission, look for Northwest Passage, trade for furs, check out the fishing spots. Because even though Sir John Popham had died, Gorgeous was going to step in from being one of the major backers to the major backer of this colony. And if we take a step back, we realize for the entire existence of this colony, Sir Fernando Gorgeous was the director back at home. He was the in investor. He was in charge of operations. So again, not to be repetitive, but maybe we should call this the Gorgeous Colony. I don't know. But the second letter he wrote, that one kind of canceled out the first. Because the second letter was to Riley Gilbert himself. And it informed Riley Gilbert that unfortunately, his brother had died. Not Bartholomew Gilbert, the one who died in 1603, searching in vain for the Roanoke colonists, but Sir John Gilbert. As such, Riley realized he was about to inherit a hefty estate. Again, and this time in England, we have many second sons. Sons of nobility, sons of the sirs, sons of the knights who inherit next to nothing, maybe some money, and then have to go out into the world and make something of themselves, whereas the oldest son tended to get everything. Well, now, Riley Gilbert was that son. He inherited uh, tons of property, I believe a castle, a nice chunk of change, and a, a title. He became titled nobility. So despite the uh, encouraging words from Gorgeous and the resupply, Gilbert packed up the remaining colonists, and he went home. And believe it or not, thus ends the Popham colony. So now I turn to a subject that I spoke with John Henneman about on his 100th episode of the History of the Americans podcast, which you should go check out. John brought up that many modern historians credit the Native Americans for causing the English to abandon the Popham colony. He didn't buy that explanation as the primary reason, nor did I. I said it was secondary or tertiary. At this point, Looking at everything again, I would say it's definitely secondary. Let's not go all the way to tertiary. It's definitely secondary. The strongest piece of evidence that these historians have is a little bit of evidence from Father Pierre Biard, who we learned about last season when we learned about uh, New France and specifically the early Acadian colonies. In 1612, he reported that the natives in the area pointed out the Popham site to them and claimed that they pushed out the English. But as we know from this podcast and many other ones that we've had so far, the natives were very well aware of the rivalries between the different European powers, and they were incredibly astute at manipulating Europeans into getting what they want, as we've seen in this episode, getting captive natives back to their homeland by promising, oh, there's gold mines, oh, China's just to the west. By the year 1612, the natives were very well aware, I keep saying that, that the French and English had a rivalry with one another. And so one of the best ways to ingratiate yourself with the French is to claim that you had a hand in pushing out the English. 
And just to throw out one piece of counter evidence, in the entire existence of the colony, as short-lived as it was, there were only two people who died. Both died over winter, and one was George Popham, who died of simply being old and unhealthy. Clearly, there was no mass assault on Fort St. George, nor no slowly winnowing down of numbers through guerrilla attacks. But I'm going to digress on this subject. If you want to yell at me about it, go ahead and do that. This just isn't the time for it. And so now, as is the format, let's turn to the legacy portion of our story. A lot of these short-lived colonies, typically there is no legacy of them in uh, the written accounts or in the books or in the encyclopedia articles, in the JSTOR articles. Many people consider them too short-lived to have had any real impact. Well, I don't. So let's get into some of the legacies of Popple. Remember, they built a boat, which the people of Jamestown and the people of Plymouth, many years in the future, wouldn't be able to do for a very long time after their foundation, whereas Popham Colony did it almost immediately. It was a seaworthy vessel called the Virginia, and it was actually used by the Jamestown Colony eventually. So it changed hands and moved from the Virginia Company of Plymouth to the, the Virginia Company of London, and it became in service in the Jamestown Colony. But Jamestown also benefited from some of these Popham colonists. Eventually, they were relocated to Jamestown. And the third transfer was money. The investors back in England, after the failure of Popham, many of the investors in the Plymouth Company took their funds over to the London Company, thus flushing Jamestown with more investment. And so in the short term, Popham's failure was all to the benefit of Jamestown. And now we don't need to tell you why Jamestown is important. It's the foundation of English settlement in the South. The Popham colony becomes a corpse, and that corpse feeds Jamestown. Now let's go to the medium-term legacy of Popham. There are unsubstantiated rumors, and they will always remain unsubstantiated, that some of the Popham colonists remained in that area of Maine, or that they returned to that area of Maine for different fishing and fur trading operations. And we'll see in our next episode the murky beginnings of this area that we now call the state of Maine, into what's now New Brunswick and even Nova Scotia, and how the English will be hobnobbing around there way earlier than you would think. The medium-term consequence for the Plymouth Company, the Virginia Company of Plymouth, was just disastrous. Uh, the Popham Colony proved to be a failure and began this notion that Northern Virginia, or Norumbega, was too cold to be settled by the English. Sir Ferdinando Gorgias wrote after Popham, All our hopes have been frozen to death. And then the long-term legacy is that there are references to an English settlement, at least. And then in the long term, the Popham colony helped to solidify the English claim to that area of North America. Again, one of the ways that Europeans argued that they owned a certain area of the world was occupation. I have a colony there with people, my people living there, or I did have people living there, the former being more convincing than the latter. And so it helps stake out that claim against the competing French claim. Also, there are vague references to this occupation in the charter for the Council for New England, which the Virginia Company of Plymouth will eventually become. And it is that council that provides any sort of legitimacy to the colony of Plymouth. So Popham helps to legitimize this future council. This council legitimizes Plymouth. And also this council inadvertently, accidentally, not uh, under Sir Ferdinando Gorgias's eye, legitimizes the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the distant year of 1629. And so just to be redundant this time, Popham planted the seeds of legitimacy for the colonies that we do know and love. But it also made way for those colonies, because Popham was a failure. Imagine if it was a success. The history of the area that we now call New England would be completely different. We might not even call it New England. We're going to learn about that in the next episode. This wonderful haven for separatists and Puritans may not have existed if Popham had taken off. It might have become a merchant adventurer empire populated by financially minded fur traders, for all we know. And so in the house of cards that is history, Popham needed to fail so that we could have Plymouth and we could have Massachusetts. And in rebuke of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and so on and so forth. The butterfly effect, 
comes in at this point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with me. If you did stick with me, I know this was a long one. In our next episode, we're going to learn about this period after the Popham colony falls apart, but before the Plymouth colonists show up in 1620. It sounds like there's nothing going on, but there's a lot going on. A lot of it's going unrecorded, of course. But among other things, we're going to see a certain character you might know from history named John Smith, well known for his escapades down in Jamestown. He actually has a lot to do with what's going on in Northern Virginia. And in fact, he's gonna be part of why Northern Virginia becomes New England. But I'm gonna keep some of the surprises in the bag for now. My name is Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening to the Other States of America History Podcast.